Amen. Fantastic. Well, we're so excited to unpack this Bible passage today. If you are under the age of 18, uh, a child or a young person, then please go down to um, Lee in the corner because we've got a fantastic youth group and some kids work here as well for you. Um, As Alicia said, my name is Brogan. I'm married to Beth. I'm a trainee vicar here at St. Thomas's and it's a privilege to unpack Matthew 22 today. Please do keep the passage open in front of you. As I was reading uh, Matthew, preparing for this, I was reminded of when I first became a Christian, first started to explore faith, because it was the first book that I read. And back then, about 10 years ago, I had two big questions when I read the book of Matthew. The first was this, Jesus talks a lot about doing good stuff. We read about it today, love God, love people. How good do I have to be to be good enough? That was one question I had. And the second question I had was, okay, I get what it would be like to be a Christian if I was uh, 2,000 years ago and was a fisherman or was a carpenter or, or whatever, but what does it look like for me now in my life? What does it look like for me in the 21st century? And as we go through this passage today, we're going to see that Jesus has a lot to say about those two questions. But it's worth noting that when we bring our questions to the Bible, the Bible acknowledges them, but its primary aim is to point us to Jesus. The Bible's core message is that we need Jesus. And we're going to see today that we need Jesus's salvation, we need Jesus's vision of life and human flourishing, and we need to know Jesus's true identity. So let's start with the first one there, we need Jesus's salvation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are the religious leaders, and the Pharisees come up to Jesus with this question. What is the most important command in the law? That is the first five books of the Bible. The law was a a revelation of God to his people, the Israelites, and it had three main aims. Firstly, to reveal God to them. Secondly, to invite them into a relationship with God And then thirdly, to show them how to be in a relationship with God. If you like, that is a summary of the law. It all points to God. As we've said, we need God. We need Jesus. So the law is a signpost to God, but these Pharisees and the Sadducees, they have made it more about the signpost than the one it points to. Yeah? The law is a signpost post pointing to God, but the Pharisees and Sadducees have made the law more about the signpost itself than the one it points to. They're living in a self-righteous culture where the law had become a tick list of things you had to do, which is where their question arises from. What is the most important thing we've got to do? And Jesus answers perfectly. He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. It would be tempting to take this and immediately try to apply it to our lives. Jesus has said it, 
Therefore, we've just got to apply it straight away. And whilst that intention is right, we need the whole counsel of God, the whole of the Bible to guide our interpretation. Because there's a risk otherwise that we make the same mistake that the Pharisees do, that we turn these things into a tick list. Am I loving God with all my heart, with all my mind, with my soul? Tick, tick, tick. Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Cross. <laughs> you know, we, we turn it into a tick list. And it's an easy mistake to make this because we live in a culture where we are forced to live like that. Right, loads of students in tonight. If you are at university, you've got to meet a series of requirements to be good enough to get a degree, yeah? If you are uh, at work, you've got to be better or work harder or work faster than your colleagues to get a promotion. On social media, if you say something that the court of public opinion doesn't approve of, you get shouted down or cancelled. You have to earn and you have to justify and you have to achieve everything you want in life. And this leads to a culture of anxiety that we find ourselves in. Because we're in a cultural moment where every minute of your life has to be accounted for. Self-improvement, job improvement, grade improvement, relationship goals, Instagram goals, beauty goals. Justify your worth, justify your viewpoint, justify your lifestyle. And for many of us, this culture is draining the life out of living. Because we're in an achievement-oriented culture. What we do is of ultimate significance. And so it's really easy to read the Bible in that way, to read Jesus saying, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself in the same achievement-oriented way. But the whole point of the law that they're asking Jesus questions about was to teach the people how they need God, that the need for God is fulfilled in Jesus. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul will write this, for all who rely on the works of the law, that is, treat the Bible like a tick list, are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. But he goes on to say this, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That is taking it on himself. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a pole. That's a reference to the cross. Jesus redeemed us so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is the only one who perfectly loves God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. He's the only one who perfectly loves his neighbor as himself. Therefore, he's the only one who can have a perfect relationship with God. Yet on the cross, he takes on himself all the times that you and I have failed to love God perfectly and fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, no matter how hard we have tried. And when he does that, 
he swaps place with us and gives us that free gift of a perfect relationship with God that he has. You see, when we know who Jesus is and what he has done, we don't read his words here and feel overwhelmed at how good we have to be, but rather overawed at how good he is. When Jesus says these words, he's not telling us what we have to do to be saved, but rather what he has already done. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor are not how we earn our salvation, but rather how we spend our salvation. So, let's back up 10 minutes to when Hannah first read that passage to us. What was your reaction? How did it make you feel? What did it make you think? And I'm guessing we could probably broadly group our responses into one of two categories. The first might be a little bit like warrants on there. Well, I'm not perfect, but I do a lot more good than bad. I do enough. I try hard enough. I'm good enough. I can do this. That's one response. Another response might be to say, oh my goodness, I am not good enough. Oh my goodness, I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed. I'm not good enough. Can Jesus love me? Can I be in a relationship with God? Wherever we're at, the Bible's message for us is the same. We need Jesus. Our good efforts are simply not good enough, but his good efforts are. This is how much God loves you. That he would give Jesus for you and for me so that we could have a perfect relationship with him. Free from guilt, free from regret, free from shame. Just an undeserved gift of love and mercy from God. Now, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this tonight. Maybe you realize that you have always read the Bible as things that you've got to do to be good enough to be a Christian or be good enough to be in a relationship with God. If that's so, we're going to pray a prayer at the end. If you want to take this free gift of life that Jesus offers and start following him tonight. Maybe you've been on the edge of faith and you've been exploring it for a while, but tonight you want to step into it. And we're going to pray together at the end, and we'd love you to join us in that. Secondly, what we see from these verses is that we need Jesus' vision of life and human flourishing. If we're saved, not by what we do, but rather by what Jesus has done for us, it leaves us this question, how then should we live? And not just live, but live well. Because if we're in a relationship with the God who made the universe, presumably that means we can live well or flourish. Well, let's explore what we mean by living well or flourishing. What counts as human flourishing? 
Maybe for the Pharisees who are asking Jesus this question, it was about places of honor and respect, being leaders in their community, being seen to keep all the rules, to tick all the boxes. Maybe for us, a good life today is informed by the Western ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Maybe we would say that someone who has a good life is someone who's fulfilled by work, has got plenty of money, a great family life, good relationships, brilliant friendships. Or maybe there's a reaction against that which embraces minimalism, that embraces true independence and freedom, not needing anybody, living off-grid as much as possible, having a, a, a vastly reduced impact on the world and the environment. Well, it is interesting that when the Pharisees come to ask Jesus a question, they ask him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Because the law covers all areas of life, all conceivable areas of life. So when the Pharisees are asking Jesus to define the most important commandments, they're asking him to define their priorities, their goals, what is most important. This is a series of three questions that they've asked him. The other two have been about money and about marriage. Maybe they're expecting him to double back and go on to something about those two. But what does Jesus pick out as the two key tenets on which everything else, in his words, hangs? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole of the Old Testament, not just the first five books. At the beginning, I shared that question I had. What does life look like for me to be a Christian now in the 21st century? Church, I believe it looks something like this. Loving God and loving people. And everything that we're called to do as Christians essentially fits into one of those two commands. Let's think about what you might do on, uh, on your average day as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you wake up and you read your Bible or you pray. That is, you orientate to your life towards God and you bring before him the needs of the world. Love God and love people. Maybe you're a university student and you're studying. What does Jesus say? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Study the world God has created. Learn how to best serve people. Whether it's spending time with your friends or exploring the world through hobbies, we are loving God and we're loving people. But what I really want to drill down on tonight is our work. Because to Jesus, your work is not just something you do to earn money, but rather it is a holy vocation. It's God's gift to you, the way that he has given you to love him and to love the world, no matter what your job is. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a dentist, 
It's quite easy to see that one. You're you're ministering healing and you're loving God through exploring the world of science. If you're a cleaner or an administrator or a manager or a secretary, you're bringing order, restoring order to the world. You're loving God. You're loving people. If you're a lawyer or an advocate or a police officer, you are ministering justice to the world in the name of Jesus. You're loving God, you're loving people. If you're a tradesman or a gardener or a laborer, you are creating spaces for people to live and to exist and to love and to live in. You are loving God, you are loving people. If you're a vet or a farmer, you're caring for God's creation, you're loving God, you're loving people. If you're a supermarket worker or a chef or a carer, You are providing for people's needs. You're loving God. You're loving people. There is no job that a Christian can be called to do that is not expressed in one of the, in these two things, love God and love people. But so often we've accepted a worldly definition of our jobs. When there's an invitation tonight from Jesus to pray for a revelation of how God sees them. The Jewish law covered all manner of activities, but Jesus says all activities hang on these two commands. This is what human flourishing looks like. And it is the most radical and it's the most inclusive way to live. Because no one's job is more important than anyone else's job. A doctor is not senior to a cleaner or more important than a cleaner. An administrator is not more important than the CEO that they work for. And chuck in any jobs that you like into that equation. Because all people are effectively doing the same job expressed in different ways, which is, as Christians, to love God and love people. This gives dignity to the unemployed and the long-term sick, because whether you are stuck in bed or whether you are out at work... You are called to love God and love people. It means that there is no shame in being poor nor pride in being rich because both the poor and rich alike live under the same standards. Love God and love people. That's the first thing that Jesus is teaching here in these two commandments. The second is that they are locked into each other. There is no love of God that is not expressed in loving people. And whilst we don't fully grasp this, the church throughout history and the church today has become and is becoming ever more awakened to this, that we are called to express our faith in the way that we love and serve and care for our communities. Lee spoke a bit about that last week, and we're going to look at more of it in the coming weeks. But we're not as good at seeing these two commands locked into each other the other way round. That the love of people is necessarily governed by the terms of God. What do I mean? Well, there's a risk of reading this text where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, as how can I give people what they want? 
How should we know how to love our neighbor? Well, there are a few options. The first is, well, we'll do what we feel is right. Yeah, I just have this inkling in me, and I I feel this is the right way to love someone. The problem is that whilst that is a good thing to want to do, to pay attention to the Spirit of God at work in us, we are also conditioned by a fallen and a broken society. What we feel is right is not necessarily right. One of the things we've seen in 2020 is, um, is the way that racism in societies has been uncovered for what it is. Racism is utterly abhorrent to God, but many people throughout history have just felt it to be right. Just because our feelings tell us something is right doesn't mean that's true. Perhaps we could say, well, I will love people, uh, yeah, I'll give people what they want, and that will be governed by what is culturally appropriate. But I can think you can see where I'm going. The same criticism has been made, can be made of that. Throughout many, many cultures, racism has been perfectly acceptable, but it never made it right. The same could be said for misogyny or sexism or homophobia. The only reliable way to know right from wrong is the word of God. And that's why Jesus gives these two commands together. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So a couple of examples of how this might play out. The first is is easy. If someone who is addicted to alcohol asks you to buy them alcohol, it is not loving to do so. And most of us would probably know that and recognize that. But we don't need to rely on our own reaction to that situation to read in Scripture that that St. Paul says, don't be drunk on wine. Some harder ones. Someone may ask you to support a cause that the Bible makes clear is not God's best for people. If so, it is unloving to do so. Love your neighbor does not mean do what people want you to do. Or perhaps there's a risk that we interpret love your neighbor as we need to be the solution to everyone's problems. Church, that is a weight that neither you nor I can carry. We have to submit to the Bible and recognize that often people need Jesus. We are his hands and feet to serve him, but he is the ultimate solution. And the greatest way that we can love people is to share Jesus with them. I'm saying this because I want to help us to be wise in a culture where love your neighbor is often quoted without reference to God. But we desperately need God to understand how we can best love people and to give us the strength to do so. The two commandments function as one. But who is Jesus to even give this command? Well, our final section tonight, we're going to see that we need to know Jesus' true 
identity. So if you've got a Bible, read this along with me. What does Jesus have, what authority does Jesus have to teach this? Well, We've seen in uh, verses 22 and, 20 th- and 33, he's amazed the Pharisees and Sadducees by his teaching. They have asked him three questions. However, he is now going to ask them a question. And whereas they wanted to trap him, he wants to free them from misguided thinking. He says, who do you say is the Messiah, literally meaning the anointed one? You see, the story of God's people in the Old Testament is that they reject God's rule over them and then constantly complain about a lack of leadership. So God raises up human leaders, some of whom are really pretty good, some of whom are really pretty bad, but none of them are perfect. And all of them are pointing forward to a savior, a perfect leader who is going to come. And that savior is the Messiah. So Jesus asks the Pharisees, who is the Messiah? To which they reply, he will be the son of David. David is amongst the best of the Old Testament kings, and he, through the Holy Spirit, wrote a song about the Messiah that they are all waiting for. And it's not just a work of art, although it is a work of art. This song is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's a prophecy, a foretelling about the Messiah who is to come. And Jesus quotes part of it here, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here, the Messiah, that is the Lord, speaks to David, who's writing this down, who refers to himself in the third person. If that sounds all a little bit complicated, welcome to Hebrew poetry. It is beautiful, but has all sorts of nuances. If it's an odd phrase, for now, read it like this. David is saying, the Messiah who is the Lord said to me, sit at my right hand. So Jesus poses the Pharisees two questions. Firstly, how can the Messiah who be speaking to David if this is a Messiah who hasn't yet come. That doesn't work chronologically. And secondly, why does David call him Lord? It would be inconceivable to a first century Jew that a grandfather would refer to his grandson as Lord. And this is like grandfather times 10. It would be inconceivable that the king would refer to anyone but God as the Lord. Jesus spells it out for them as clear as day. The Messiah is God himself in human form. That's why the Messiah speaks to David. That is why David calls him Lord. There had been people before, showmen and tricksters, who had claimed to be the Messiah, but none had claimed to be God. There was only one man who had ever done that. And on that day, he was stood right in front of the Pharisees, asking them, who do you say I am?
It's an extraordinary scene. In this moment, they are confronted with a choice, except where all of the evidence leads and points to, even though it will mean standing out from the crowd, or choose to ignore the truth that is literally standing there right in front of them. And we are put in the same position today, brothers and sisters, here in Newcastle, 2,000 years later. And maybe you're really feeling that today. We're going to respond to this Bible passage together now. So if I can invite um, Ellie up. Maybe you feel a bit like the Pharisees today. You can see that a lot of evidence points to the existence of God, points to Jesus being true. You can just feel something convicting you. There is something deep and true about this man, Jesus. But you're scared of making that step of following him for fear of what it will mean for you. Or maybe you've realized tonight that in many ways you've been asking the wrong question. You've been asking, what do I need to do? What boxes do I need to tick? How good do I need to be? When Jesus is simply asking you, who do you say I am? Is he the Messiah? The one you've been waiting for? If so, it's time to accept him tonight. I'm going to invite Ben up, who's going to lead us through this time with me. So if that's you, and you recognize that you want to start following Jesus tonight, or maybe you've had some time away from church, or you've just never really prayed a prayer quite like this before, and you would like to, then I want to invite you to place your hand on your heart. Why don't we all close our, our eyes? And just, and this is simply just to focus on, on God. This is nothing magic or anything. But if you want to pray this prayer of commitment, put your hand on your heart. If you are at home watching on the live stream, you're invited to do this as well. It's not about being physically with us in person. This is between you and God. We're just offering some words here. So a prayer. God, thank you for revealing to me through that the Bible is not a tick list that I have to complete and that I cannot please you without Jesus. God, I'm sorry for the times that I have failed to love you and love others. Thank you for the free gift of a perfect relationship with you through Jesus. I receive that gift now and commit to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Amen. If you did pray that prayer for the first time and you're in the church building today, come and speak to either Brogan or myself at the end. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to give you a book that will help you to start reading the Bible and praying. 
and we'll tell you about how you can um, get involved in church community as well. Actually, Brogan wrote that um, book. It's called 14 Days. It is fantastic. Uh, we'd love to give you a copy of one of those and a Bible. If you're watching this and you prayed that prayer, either for the first time or maybe afresh, maybe you've not been to church in years and you've started watching today, we would love to hear from you. So you can do that by just emailing us at hello at stthomas.church. You can let us know on the live chat if you want to do that or send us a message on social media. We would love to hear from you. We're going to continue to respond together. We're going to ask God by the power of his Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to reveal the truth of who Jesus is, that we might be able to comprehend it even more, even though it's so wide and high and deep and long. So can I invite us to stand where we are if we're in the building? Ellie's going to sing over us and then we'll um, come up and we'll lead us through some particular ways in which we can respond together. But let's pray that God would continue to transform us into the likeness of Jesus.